Take a network break. Pass the platter of virtual donuts and join us for our weekly squint at the tech news. We've got a tale of bankruptcy, new optics, financial results, and more. We're sponsored today by Nokia and its data center fabric for network automation and orchestration. Nokia's data center fabric is designed for day zero design, day one deployment, and operations for day two and beyond. You can find out more at nokia.ly slash dc-fabric. And listen to heavy networking episode 653 to get details and hear customer use cases. And stay tuned after the news for a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Fortinet. We're going to talk about universal zero trust network access or ZTNA, including shifting your access policies toward applications rather than networks and how to implement zero trust for IoT devices. Yeah, it'll be a short show today uh, because uh, there wasn't a lot of news last week. It was a public holiday for the Americans yesterday. And it's a quiet time of the year. We're ahead of the conferences, so we've only got a few topics to discuss today. Yeah, but we'll get through them. Uh, and before we get into the news, we have an FU or a follow-up. Uh, we had talked about uh, Cisco Live Amsterdam and a few items coming out of there, uh, including some uh, SASE, Secure Access Service Edge updates. Uh, and we didn't have a good sense of the news that had come out. And so a listener wrote in to say, um, there are three SASE-ish products from Cisco. There's Meraki with its SD-WAN, Victella SD-WAN, and then Umbrella, Cisco's Umbrella for ZTNA and a client VPN. And I guess apparently now Cisco plus Secure Connect is unifying these things under one management. So there's one management uh, console for Umbrella, and then you can do things with that in Meraki and Viptela. Yeah. And I think the point that I was trying to get across here is that having three separate strategies going on concurrently and then welding together a tool from Umbrella to manage the SD-WAN is not sassy as I think of it. Mm-hmm. Um, We've worked with so many other SASE companies, Fortinet, Palo Alto are the two that comes immediately to mind. Juniper is another one. And they have one console that does the SD-WAN and the SASE all as one. I don't have to have one set. Like if I'm configuring my Viptela, I do that separately from the umbrella, which is the Cisco Plus Secure Connect, as I understand it. Mm-hmm. And Meraki has just got SD-WAN. That's fine. But if you want to put SASE on top of that, then SASE is where you do content inspection, logging, zero trust network access user identification, you want to be monitoring the flows, you want to be doing, you know, all that, to the the full suite of security on it. You really want to buy that as part of the product. You don't want to have it as an aftermarket add-on. Otherwise, it, you know, the difference between a performance car that comes out of the factory as a performance car is very different to a car that's been modded after it comes out. And that's what Cisco's going with here, is saying, oh, we've got SASE, but what you do is you take our umbrella and then you lay it over the top of the SD-WAN, you configure it in another tool. And I find that confusing and uh, probably not the best way for Cisco to go forward if they're going to compete. Yeah, I think uh, it's a typical Cisco problem in that they have sort of all the pieces of everything uh, that you could put together for SASE, but they're not really Mm. assembled in a neat way. uh, So they're hard to use. They're disintegrated. uh, So Cisco is trying to, you know, I guess sort of prevent customers from going to a competitor by saying, we have it. Uh, it's just a little complicated and we're working on it, but, uh, you know, yeah. hang tight and uh, eventually we'll get our act together. It was the same thing with SD-WAN. Uh, when Cisco first initially tried to do SD-WAN on their own, they essentially took everything they had in-house and sort of tried to bash it all together into SD-WAN. Then they were like, no, this isn't working. We'll just buy Viptela. Uh, yeah. So. And they forgot they needed a software controller to make SD-WAN work. They tried to right. use iWAN, which was all right. a bit weird. I think the challenge here is that Cisco's trying to ship its org chart and that's a problem where big companies do this. And the reason here is that the umbrella content security and the Viptela products are in a separate BU. Mm-hmm. And Meraki is an entirely separate, almost an entirely separate company with it's completely independent of the main Cisco con- product engine and trying to weld them together via licensing. So every time you want to SD-WAN, you have to pay a license for this and for that. And if you want to add SASE on top of it, now you have to go and get umbrella and you pay more licenses. Whereas 
sassy vendors, like for example, I know that Fortinet is the real um, gone a completely different direction. They say if you just buy our firewalls and our security products, you just get it with it. It doesn't cost any extra. And um, I think that, and the thing that I find off-putting is that you try and read up on the product and understand what am I buying and how am I going to buy it, and it just becomes this mess of this license with that feature and this license and this product, but the SD-WAN is configured by this and you can do it this way or that. And it's just very, very messy and very, dare I say it, unprofessional. I think the other thing is that SASE is still very new and even the folks who have been talking about it the longest are still trying to assemble their portfolios. Not everybody has all the pieces. So there's, I think, a lot Mm -hmm. of welding happening behind the scenes from everybody. So uh, I wouldn't be rushing into SASE in the first place anyway. Uh, and I think Cisco probably has some time to catch up, but yeah, at this point, to oh, me, yes, that their sassy solution feels like a bit of a kludge. Yeah, and I think that's the point. You know, if I can't decode their product strategy in you know six to eight hours of reading through uh, the website <laughs> and the presentations and the information, then it's probably a mess. Yes, uh, underneath as well. Yeah. Anyway, links in the show notes if you want to read more about uh, the official Cisco line on it. And also, uh, thanks for the follow-up. Uh, we love getting feedback, comments, corrections, whatever you want to give us. It's, uh, you can go do that at packetpushers.net slash FU, and the FU is for follow-up. Yeah. Yep. Thanks to Dominic from the Network Autobahn. That's his blog, Network Autobahn. You might work out that he comes from Germany. Yeah, so there. go check it out. All right, let's dive into the news. First, uh, Avaya has officially filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. The company hopes to shed 75% of its debt via restructuring from approximately $3.4 billion to $800 million. This is according to a story in Reuters. Uh, and we had, I think, presaged this last week uh, that uh, there were rumors coming out that Avaya was headed this way. Yeah, so we talked about that and we said we didn't really know what the outcome was going to look like except to say it was probably Chapter 11. Uh, and in this case, they've managed to negotiate a way out. Vaya is a going business, by the way. It's not, but it's going bankrupt because it's got $3.4 billion of debt. That was when it was taken over uh, previously by a private equity during that fashionable period when mm-hmm. private equity would take over companies, load them up with debt, and then spin them back out onto the share market or flog them off to somebody else. So in this case, it was being crippled by $3.4 billion in debt. And after this, the existing shareholders will be wiped out. Basically, they've, the share price has dropped in the year from about $14 to about $0.30 cents today. And when the shares come back on the market to trade, uh, they're just being advised to sell up and move on. Uh, it'd be pretty hard to convince yourself that you want to hold on to them. But it has um, secured a whole bunch of financing commitments, capital commitments, $770 million from bank syndicates. And they've got, a, I think, about another billion in cash from various investors who are taking a major stake in the business. Uh, so you will continue, come back. Um, and if you're into their telephony solutions or their contact lender solutions, you're probably quite quite relieved that the company will continue as a going concern. Yeah, you're correct that uh, holders of Avaya shares, including individual investors and Avaya employees who have the company stock, are likely to get nothing out of the bankruptcy deal. They will be taking the uh, extreme haircut. Uh, Avaya says the restructuring allows it to continue operations and continue to serve customers and employ its workers. We should note this is Avaya's second go at bankruptcy protection. The company also filed Chapter 11 back in 2017. So yeah, have been in rough financial well, It's generally right for, for shareholders to lose out. Shareholders take risks. And uh, this is one of those examples where the shareholders should lose. Um, but the creditors are secured, but that is the conditions under which they loan to the company. They generally try and secure. They've taken a bit of a haircut too, by the way, but there you go. Everybody's taken a haircut, yeah, but some more than others as these things go. Mm. Yeah. And if yeah. I was an Avaya employee, capital. I'd be asking for yeah. the money up front instead of Well, the market capitalization today is around $30 million. So <laughs> <laughs> we can work that one out. 
Yes. <laughs> All right, links in the show notes if you want to find out more, but we'll move on. Uh, GoDaddy, a popular web hosting provider, says it has been the target of a multi-year campaign of hacking and intrusion that includes having malware installed on its systems, uh, the breach of its cPanel hosting environment, and having some source code stolen. This is all according to a story in Bleeping Computer. More than a million customers have been affected across multiple incidents over the years, including stolen emails and admin credentials for customers' WordPress sites and sites being redirected to malicious domains. Yeah. Now, I've had a fairly hostile uh, approach to GoDaddy. I don't, I've never thought much about them. Uh, we've had multiple reports, and I think I've said multiple times over at least once a year, don't do business with GoDaddy. And here's why. Um, I don't believe that Go Get GoDaddy is in any way an enterprise-grade company based on the regular reports of data breaches, hacks, credential theft, and you know all that stuff and more. And then we've had malware installed in WordPress sites that, that GoDaddy didn't detect for months and so forth. And in this case, it's a cPanel tool. That is the website administration tool, which gives you a GUI console for turning up web servers and services on the Linux host that you um, that you get given. Uh, it's had that product has had many issues and multiple serious issues over the last decade or so, and it's an obvious target for hackers. And yet, it's hard to not believe that GoDaddy has not made the effort to keep that secure. It's a known target. It's a known place where things are going to go. And the indications is that this article from uh, Bleeping Computer says GoDaddy was compromised for a period, years at least. <laughs> so, you know, th their statement doesn't acknowledge any of these issues or problems. If you go and look at the piece on the GoDaddy website, it sort of says, we're very sorry, we won't do it again. But it doesn't actually say like, uh, you know, we're working, it doesn't apologize or even accept the fact that that's their problem. They just say, we discovered an unauthorized third party. We confirmed the intrusion. We remediated the situation and customers can just suck it up, I guess. Well, so uh, the bleeping computer article links to a, a, a statement that the company filed with the Securities and Exchange Commission here in the US. Uh, so I went and looked at the, uh, the the statement and GoDaddy basically seems to be hinting there's not much they can do. Here's a quote from that statement. Such threats are constantly evolving, increasing the difficulty of detecting and successfully defending against them. So they're saying, you know, oh, it's not our fault as these are sophisticated attacks. But don't worry, GoDaddy also says, quote, to date these incidents as well as other cyber threats and attacks have not resulted in any material adverse impact to our business or operations. So no big deal, I guess. GoDaddy's fine. We're fine. Who cares about the customers? Yeah, right? Who cares about you? We're fine. <laughs> that's right. That's the only thing that's important is, is the company, right? Capitalism writ large. Good, good work, fellas. Well done. Uh, I note that the share price was not impacted and I doubt anyone will much care. GoDaddy makes about $4 billion a year in revenue and about $1 billion a year in clear profit. So they've got plenty of money to invest in security if they so chose. A quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Nokia, and its data center fabric for network automation and orchestration. Nokia's data center fabric is designed for automation from day zero design, day one deployment, and operations for day two and beyond. The scalable fabric helps the network team keep pace with demands for new applications and services, reduce risks with a digital sandbox to test changes against your actual network configuration, and provide insights into visibility and performance with deep telemetry. This fabric comes together with Nokia's SR Linux Network OS, the intent-based fabric services system platform, a digital sandbox, the NetOps development kit, or NDK, and more. Get details at nokia.ly slash dc-fabric and listen to Heavy Networking episode 653 to learn about how it all works and how customers are using Nokia's data center fabric in production. That's nokia.ly slash dc-fabric and Heavy Networking episode 653. Thanks to Nokia for being a sponsor. 
Uh, back to the news, security vendor Fortinet has released fixes for security vulnerabilities in some versions of its network access control and web firewall products. Uh, the NAC flaw is rated as critical, according to a story in Bleeping Computer. Uh, and there's a buffer overflow vulnerability in the web firewall that could uh, allow remote code execution. The fixes for both products are to upgrade to the latest software versions. Yeah, the interesting thing here that I noted was it's discovered internally by Fortinet's product security team, which means they are doing their own reviews, which is nice. It it's, uh, always feels a little bit wrong when someone outside of a vendor discovers a problem and then they <laughs> sort of say, oops, <laughs> our fault, you know, right. we should have known about that. Right. Um, this is not a good look because this is a straight up stack-based buffer overflow, which are common and just uses specifically crafted HTTP requests. There's no indication of just how complicated the attack is, but uh, it is a bit concerning that it's right across the board. And we do have a few issues where CVSs are being listed for Fortinet products. So I have some concerns um, but they do seem to be addressing them more or less correctly. I mean, it's always embarrassing for a security company to have security vulnerabilities, but better to get them mm -hmm. out there and fix them as opposed to try to pretend that doesn't happen. So, yeah, it's you know, better to take the Fortinet approach than the GoDaddy approach. <laughs> I'll take that 100% <laughs> of the time. <laughs> <laughs> no material adverse impact to our business or operations. <laughs> Not our fault. Not we can do about it. Can't get over that. It's, it's pretty cracking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> links to the advisories in the show notes if you're using any of those products, but we'll move on. Uh, Nokia has announced a new optics interface that can deliver up to 800 gigabits per second over distances of up to 2,000 kilometers. Nokia also says the new module reduces network power consumption by 60%. Yeah, I thought I'd put this in because uh, it's interesting that we're seeing a photonic surgeon service engine running at 1.3 gigaboards, which is, I just want to think about that. That's 1300 gigabits per second of underlying signaling, which gives you up to 1.2, sorry, it's 130 gigaboards, which means that the uh, the light transport or the, the DWDM transport can carry up to 1.2 terabits of capacity per wavelength. That mm. is boggling, just mm -hmm. boggling, I think. Um, and it's sort of like that theme that I keep pointing out to everybody that bandwidth is cheap. This module is an in-place upgrade, so if you're already running Nokia equipment that uses this, you can just drop it in. It leverages existing ITU-T WDM channel plans. Um, but I also note that it's using 5 nanometer silicon. So that's sort of like iPhone class. We a lot of the times hear about how Apple has gotten a hold of most of the capacity. But in this case, Apple, uh, sorry, three, two, um, in this case, Nokia has managed to get uh, 5 nanometer silicon, which reduces the power. Um, so it scales the bandwidth up. You're looking at 400 to 800 gigs easily over this this thing and getting a real increase in performance. Yeah, it's pretty astonishing uh, throughput capabilities here. Mm. And the other one is they made a lot of uh, pointing out about power consumption. Now, I know that coherent optical modules are very, very costly in terms of how much power they use. And they're talking here about 60% power reductions. Now, um, with overall power reductions of up to 40% per bit transported, and as always, these things are a little bit complicated to measure and marketing bloviation aside. Just interesting that we're now seeing power consumption often discussed in these uh, projects, in these new products that are coming to market. Cisco made a big deal about it at their uh, Cisco Live event in Amsterdam last week, talked a lot about how they're measuring power. Um, measuring it is one thing. Uh, reducing the power consumption, it hasn't actually happened yet, I would note, but Cisco is providing ways to measure it, which is viable because they want to be able to prove to customers that they did something uh, to reduce power, although I'd rather see them reducing power now rather than, you know, just measuring it. So 
Well, you have to start with measuring and then you can get into reductions, but I can understand there uh, must be a, a demand from particularly the hyperscalers building out massive data centers where power is now mm -hmm. becoming the primary constraint. Yeah, I've seen a couple of people actually putting together entire tools just to calculate power consumption and work out where efficiency, and we're actually seeing things like 5G base stations actually shut off at period of low consumption. So, you know, huh. in the night and that sort of thing. Huh. So to save power, whereas once upon a time, that would have been a heinous crime against the telecom, <laughs> you know, pantheon of God sort of thing. <laughs> All right, uh, moving on. The U.S. Supreme Court is hearing arguments in a lawsuit that could have widespread implications for social media companies, internet service providers. Uh, this lawsuit alleges that YouTube bears some responsibility for the murder of an American by Islamist state terrorists by Islamic State terrorists uh, in an attack in Paris in 2015 because YouTube's algorithm served up militant propaganda from Islamic State that radicalized viewers and recruited fighters. Uh, at issue is Section 230 of the U.S. Communications Decency Act. It says that ISPs and website owners aren't responsible for content on their platform and are thus shielded from such lawsuits. Um, but the Supreme Court has decided to hear this case and lawsuits come in a time when political parties on both sides are frustrated for different reasons with social media giants and their content moderation policies. Yeah, so I'm going to leave the civil rights angle alone because that's for somewhere else. I don't think that's for us to discuss. Um, although the political angle does actually have a direct bearing here in that um, in the US, both sides of the government, uh, both you know the left and right of the government there, believes that social media benefits the other party, which right. it seems to be, yeah. I find quite amusing when you boil it down. <laughs> uh, I think the angle that I would take here is that for companies that host support forums, or customer contact sites, or for customer boards, if you're running a forum where customers can participate, they will also lose their um, Section 230 pr privileges. Because if you're a company, and let's say you're, say, Cisco's DevNet forum, mm -hmm. they are now liable for what's posted on that forum, regardless of anything that you post to say that you're not. Potentially, and depending so on how the Supreme Court rules. Yes, this is all potential. That's right, yeah, yeah. subject. And that's an interesting angle, so that if you post a script onto that site, then the vendor becomes responsible for that. Mm -hmm. And if it's a false script, do you end up in a situation where you're liable for a badly put together Python script or someone who offers technical advice, which is, is significantly wrong? Um, so, and then if you look at tools like Hacker News, Stack Overflow and Reddit, where programmers and engineers gather to share information, they also could become liable for technical advice. And I just wonder um, how that's going to play out. And companies who've got enterprise sustainability goals and a very strong focus on human and human resources in terms of putting together a good brand strategy and representing the right brand to customers. They don't want to be associated with content that might be posted on platforms that their brand hosts. And I'm, I think there'd be an interesting turnaround if that uh, got legs. Yeah. So I think the uh, tech community at large, particularly social media companies are holding their breath and will vigorously uh, argue this mm. uh, before the Supreme Court, but it's also going to be months before a decision gets handed down. So uh, in the meantime, it's just wait and see. But uh, yeah, it is I mean, out the, there. The death and... of Facebook and <laughs> any sort of impact of Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, TikTok would be deeply amusing and probably wouldn't <laughs> degrade society very much, I don't think. There's only so no. many ads we can watch at the end of the day. So. Right. And in, in particular, social media companies are terrified of Section 230 protections being removed because that would open them to any and all kinds of lawsuits uh, and have their business model threatened. So that's why they're... Ah, and also Google's, you know, if you find a malware ad in a Google sure. ad server, yep. Section 230 covers that. Yep.
All right, there's a link in the show notes if you want to read up on it, we'll move on. Uh, we got some financial results. First, Cisco Systems has reported earnings for their second quarter of the fiscal year 2023. The company had revenues of $13.6 billion, up 7% year-over-year, and net income of $2.8 billion, down 7% year-over-year. Uh, and by business unit, networking and security were a couple of the big winners with revenues of uh, 14 and 7% up, respectively. Collaboration was down 10%. Yeah, so Cisco sitting on a backlog of about 14 to $15 billion. Uh, during the pandemic, it's believed, depending on how you sit on this issue, it's believed that a lot of customers forward ordered a significant amount of equipment. And although Cisco's um, managed to get their shares to pop 5% because they forecasted that the, the coming quarters are going to be better than was previously forecasted, and they also added one cent to the dividend, that will always commit to them. And Cisco takes such forecasts very, very seriously. Uh-huh. So sitting on 14 to $15 billion worth of business, which is 25% of their annual revenue, uh, that means that they pretty much know exactly what's happening and that's going to fluff the results for the next couple of quarters. However, Jeffrey says that underlying this is the low growth of just 2 to 4%. And I would draw your attention to the fact that its smaller competitors are generally growing much faster, typically in the order of 10 to 20%. So Cisco's got good results here because they came in on target. They didn't come in and get growth. So, you know, if we look at Arista, we talked about Extreme or, you know, Fortinet and so forth, they're all growing at significant numbers, albeit of a much smaller base than Cisco is. Uh-huh. Cisco's really just holding holding the ground of just 2 to 4%. Um, and in some cases, if you think of inflation and the recession and, and what's going on, you might have expected them to be significantly ahead of that goal. So um, it's a confusing story here. Right. And speaking of growth from smaller competitors, Arista also reported results for its fourth quarter and full financial year 2022. They had an astounding fourth quarter revenues of $1.2 billion, up 54.7% over this time last year, and net income of $427 million. For the full year, Arista had revenues of $4.3 billion, up 48.6% over last year, and net income of $1.3 billion. That's the kind of growth that uh, Cisco would not sell leg off to get. <laughs> yeah, that's quite right. Um, and in particular, uh, again, Jeffrey's t- posted in their research note that they believe that Arista has been very strong in selling to Meta, aka Facebook, mm-hmm. who accounted for 25% of financial twenty financial year 2022 sales right. versus less than 10% last year. So in dollar terms, the business grew from what they believe to be less than $290 million to $1.1 billion in 2022. And Arista noted that some of the strength came from catch-up following several years of underinvestment using the same 10% customer metric Microsoft counted for $700 million in sales, up from $442 million. So Arista's really captured the largest volume of the cloud titans here, and it's a significant part of their business. Um, it should be noted here that Cisco sells about $53 billion a year, just to make a comparison, and Arista has sold $4.3 billion in 2022, and projected to sell 4.5.4 billion in 2023. This is what I mean about this growth. Cisco will go from 53 to 54 billion. Arista will go from 4.3 billion to 5.4 billion in the year. That's really a good growth. And you would have to say that that comes at Cisco's expense, who would have otherwise picked up that business, I think, by and large, don't you think? Yeah, I will say that uh, it is true that Meta and Microsoft uh, account for 255 and 16% of Arista's revenue, respectively. Um, and on the one hand, sure, that's great when those companies are buying, but it also, uh, those two customers alone account for more revenue than Arista's entire enterprise and financial services customers combined. So the uh, fly in the ointment for me is that when two customers, not two segments, but two customers account for about 40% of your business, 
that's that's a that's a potential danger. Uh, it's great when they're spending, yeah. when they're not. Things. Could yeah. Be worse. Well, you know, it just depends. It's it's just interesting to think about that sort of thing. And they uh, they can see they note Jeffrey's notes in their research note that they can see nine months ahead mm-hmm. on that, so they can tell the market if that's going to turn down. They can predict forward revenue. However, that is less than they were able to predict a year out before. But now they think that the visibility from these from their customers is now out to a year, uh, nine months. So. Yeah. Losing visibility as time goes by, but you know, at the end of the day, growing twenty percent, twenty five percent a year, you know, and a quarter being up over fifty percent, and they're not having particular supply chain problems, mm-hmm. whereas Cisco is really mired in supply chain problems by comparison. Mm-hmm. It's sitting on fifteen dollars, fifteen billion worth of back orders, and yet Arista shipping. So there is a there is a, a gap between the two. Uh, if there's anything there that I don't see or I should know about, please reach out at. Uh, Packetpushes.net slash FU if I'm making unfair comparisons. Yeah, again, I just worry like when two customers account for that much of your business, they could potentially call the shots. I know Arista has been sort of making efforts to diversify, getting more into the enterprise campus. Mm-hmm. They're, they're flirting with wireless, they're flirting with SD-WAN and things. But when so much business is coming from two companies who could just call up and be like, hey, we need this. And Arista's going to be like, yep, we're on it. And everything else sort of gets put to the side. I just worry about... Uh, Arista being Arista may have captured the cloud market, but it feels like the cloud market has also captured Arista, and so that's a you know a, a double-edged sword. It is, it is, but it can be fixed over time. I think the enterprise market is slow to grow, mm-hmm. financial markets are slow to grow, but once they're there, they're very sticky. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think you've got to look at this as a bit of a bluebird, I would think, and the share price reflects that. Uh, the recommendation is a hold, not a buy. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sure champagne corks are popping at Arista for the quarter and the the full year, Uh, but always another quarter awaits and we'll see what happens. All right. That wraps up the news portion of the show. Stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Fortinet. Uh, We're going to be talking about universal zero trust network access. That's coming right up. Welcome to the Tech Bytes podcast. One of the hot fashions in the networking market today is zero trust network access. And we are talking at ZTNA with our sponsor, Fortinet. Now, the first phase of zero trust mostly targeted remote users because the pandemic brought that remote access and remote security to the forefront of everybody's mind. And what people are finding is that once you have a large enough percentage of users using remote access, then on-premise users start to become a significant security risk by comparison, right? And so just because you're connected directly to a campus network doesn't imply security or safety when your off-premise network actually has control of what applications you can access, where in the network you can reach, whereas the campus network generally just gets everywhere because you're assumed to be a safe and trusted resource. Now, zero trust network access is much more than just network access and network access control. It should be about access to the applications. Joining us today is Peter Newton, Senior Director of Products at Fortinet, and the topic is Fortinet's approach to ZTNA, which they call Universal ZTNA. All right, Peter, let's kick us off. What's your what's the Forty approach to the Universal ZTNA? Well, our approach is uh, hitting on that exact issue of the idea that ZTNA is not a remote-only solution, and the true principles of zero trust. Zero trust is an everywhere solution. In fact, you know if you look at the description of ZTNA, it actually should be network agnostic. Well, network mm-hmm. agnostic means it doesn't matter if you're on the, your own network or on our, any remote network, you should have the same controlled access to applications, whether you're on-prem or remote. And just like you said, you know, it's odd now that for many people, they have a better security for those remote users because they're checking their devices, they're mm-hmm. you know checking that role-based access uh, before they're granting access to a given application, but then they're not doing that when they're on the corporate network. 
Yeah. But their Why device not? could be compromised. You know, they could because have something going on that's it needs the same patches. If you, it, know, you know, if the NAC client says this machine needs to be patched to this level, but they're on the campus and no one's checking it, it's a bit weird. Now, exactly. I, I guess the trick here is that we need to realize that the branch LAN, a remote user who potentially is working from a, you know, an off-premise site or a maybe from home or maybe from a coffee shop or whatever, mm-hmm. is also the same person who works in a campus LAN or a campus network or a head office network. And I guess what we're mm-hmm. saying here is that we actually need to converge all of those networks into one. So are we actually seeing a blurring of the lines between WAN, branch, campus into sort of just one network? Or is it more like we've got to have the same tools on all of them? Well, our position is more that you just need the same security policies on all of them. (laughs) Certainly on-campus networks are going to be different than remote networks. Uh, There's still going to be limits uh, of who can get onto the the on-campus network. But you know, within today's working environment, it's not that you have remote users and on-campus users. You really have people that were working both on-campus and remote. The, the work from anywhere, a couple of days in the office, a couple of days at home. Uh, these users should have a consistent experience. When they go to do their work, you know, they're launching the applications. Can you imagine the tech support of a completely different process at home? To being well, that's what a lot of people are dealing with today. Oh, yeah, I know. But, you know, if they haven't gone to ZTNA, maybe, you know, they have to launch the VPN when they're off network. But when they're in the office, they don't have to. And, and maybe they have to do a multi-factor check when they're on or off. And anyway, you know, and from a security standpoint, the IT organization then has to maintain two different types of policies. And as you know, the more policies you have, um, the more likely it is that something isn't going to get patched, updated, and there's going to be a gap somewhere. But Peter, it sounds like you're advocating that people that are on campus go through the same headaches that they deal with when they're off campus with some kind of multi-factor authentication and all the rest of it. And the ops people, the engineers that support all this infrastructure are going, wait a minute, if people are in the office, that's easy. They just plug in and they go and I don't have to worry about that stuff. So so what, what kind of an architecture are you actually advocating for? Well, I am architecting, uh, sorry, arguing for a consistent experience. Uh, The good thing about ZTNA is that it's usually less user friction than traditional mechanisms. You know, your traditional remote access um, with uh, all the logins, you log into your VPN, then you log into your application. With ZTNA, you just do one login and all a lot of that, uh, you know, the encrypted tunnel happens automatically uh, with single sign-on and other checks that are happening uh, in the background, the user doesn't necessarily know that their device is getting checked for firmware updates, that mm. it's being checked for you know antivirus being turned on. From a security standpoint, you're just having the same policy if someone's on or off. So even when they're in the office, yeah, we're still going to check the firmware. We're still going to check the AV. We're going to check, has this device been to a website can it I, shouldn't have been to? Can I just ask, ask a weird question here? You're talking about things that in years gone by, those were entire companies doing agents on a client and checking if the patches were applied and updates and all that sort of stuff. Are you telling me that this is just part of your NAC now? Well, it's not actually in our NAC solution. This is part of Fortinet's zero trust network access solution, which is uh, a feature. It's not a licensed thing. It's uh, we just built it into our products because we believe in it and it exists in our uh, client agent. This is the same agent that is our VPN agent. It does our um, URL filtering, patching policy. It's our fabric. We call it our security fabric agent because as uh, Fortinet believes in the security fabric and a platform of cybersecurity products, this agent you know, sits on your uh, laptop or, or mobile phone and provides the status of your device. It tries, you know, shows where the user's gone and gives the IT organization tremendous visibility and control. Just 
just turned into a feature and you're not charging for it. You're not charging it. It's just part of the license that you get when you buy Zero Trust from Fortinet. Well, technically, you can't actually buy Zero Trust from us. Okay. We, you, you have to buy, you know, you, if you own a FortiGate and you own a Forti client, you have Zero Trust. You have right. that okay. ZTNA functionality just available to you. Um, right. And that's, you know, we believe, you know, when someone is um, uh, deploying Zero Trust, it should be anywhere and everywhere. Our Forti client agent is on the device in the office, it's out of the office. Um, and of course, you know, with FortiGates, you know, you're going to have those in the office, you can have them in the cloud. Uh, mm-hmm. And so you have ZTNA uh, application gateways, you know, okay. throughout your network that really enables efficient, uh, fast access to applications and control points throughout your uh, organization. You're, you're painting Nirvana, Peter, but I think I just found the hole in this, which is the all the all my mm-hmm. IoT stuff I have because you said agent. That's the magic word. Well, I can't put an agent on my surveillance cameras. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, you bring up a good point. Zero trust. And I would say the devices still need zero trust policies, and we're a firm believer in that. But as you point out, they don't take agents. Whether you're talking about IP phones, IP cameras, printers, you know, badge readers, HVAC controllers, these are not things you're going to put an agent on. Um, and for that reason, uh, you need a different mechanism to be able to apply those principles of zero trust, of you know, identification, verification, and then granting them limited uh, access to the network enough that they can get their job done, but but nothing more. So whereas we uh, use our Forticlient uh, agent for user access to applications, for devices, you need a different mechanism. And for us, we use our NAC solution. Um, it's uniquely designed so it can actually be an orchestration uh, engine and it can enforce zero trust policies for those devices. It can discover them, identify them, and then configure the network, you know, for no matter what type of device you have out there, whether it's is Cisco, on, HP. But, the, yep. but I think the key here is that Fortinet actually has its own switches. Not everybody might be aware that you make Ethernet switches that people can use to build brand, not only branch networks, but campus networks as well. And, that's and our solution more, works on our switches as well. Right, um, yep. And we, you know, our switch sales have been going crazy. Uh, but we do recognize that people do have other vendors in their network uh, for their switching oh, and access points. Really? And- Would that be- <laughs> Could they? They're not going to throw it all out and just just. To- <laughs> well, you know, Fortinet's absolutely number one in firewalls with more than half the market now. I think mm-hmm. uh, with the switching and wireless, we still got a bit of ways to go. So we are do support multi-vendor uh, yeah. when it comes to the uh, the network infrastructure. <laughs> you better get to work there, Peter. You better get to work there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's, that is a much more realistic approach. I think you said at the outset that it's much more of a progressive. Zero trust is something that, you know, most people started with with remote access and then maybe added it to their branch. And then they need to, it's not something you're going to go in and say, today, zero trust will be everywhere, you know, and, and, and configure the whole network. And then on Monday, boom, zero trust. It's much more of a gradual thing from what, from what we were saying. Oh, absolutely. Um, and and when you, you, I think we should actually be clear here in that there's zero trust, which is a broad concept of how you want to enable users and devices to access your resources. And then there's specific projects or capabilities like ZTNA is a mm. subset of that that really just looks at how do I get my users to mm. applications? And so ZTNA, you know, for us, that that's very much an application level 
control right. point. And yep. so if you go to access a, a certain application, um, you know, we're going to have, there's going to be a policy around whether you can access what type of state your device has to be in, um, where you can be time of day. And then if you go to access a different application, it's going to be a different, could be a different policy, uh, but it's going to be by application and we're going to be checked you're going to be checked for every single session yeah whether when you go to access those applications now that's just ztna users and applications now when we talk about devices they still need zero trust principles but that's not necessarily ztna because mm. devices in many cases aren't necessarily accessing applications they're not logging into something they're mm -hmm. they're connecting to a server they're connecting to a gateway a controller and so it's really there it's more about configuring the network to bring those zero trust principles yeah. to that device, make sure it's See, got that, granular access is, and all that. This comes back to that security fabric idea. What you're saying here is that, yes, we've got a zero trust solution that applies out here in the branch or for remote users coming in over the public web slash internet, but you're also unifying that same fabric for NAC. So you're using NAC on Ethernet switches in the campus and the wireless. Let's let's not mm -hmm. over-rotate yep. on one or the other, right? And But you're integrating that into one unified policy. So I don't have to sit there and go, these are my policies on my remote access and then translate them to the NAC for the campus. It's all one. You can. It's all unified in the controller somewhere. Yeah. And the, the our NAC solution is, uh, it's got a great architecture in that it'll reach out to all your branch offices. So you set up your policy and it can enforce in all your locations. You don't have to be putting NAC machines out at all your locations, mm. uh, but it can actually, you know, equally, it does, it's not relied on .1x. So it can manage the wired network at the same as the wireless. And you have a basically a single policy and say, hey, you know, my IP cameras, they're going to be have access to my NVR server. So they can record and send video in, but they aren't going to have access to the financial servers, not going to have access to the sales servers. Uh, so they can't be used as a, you know, reconnaissance. Uh, if there's a, you know, weakness in there, they can't be used to launch a denial of service attack. They're only going to have access to, uh, to the server that they need to talk to. And you can do that by configuring the network, put them in their own little slice. And if they move, if someone unplugs a wire, replugs it in, that NAC is, you know, constantly monitoring. So it can see that, reconfigure the network and maintain those, those devices within their own narrow slice of the network. Now you said slice, put them in their own slice. Is that, what's that translate to from a network engineering perspective? Is that a VLAN? You put them in a VLAN and then when you try to route between VLANs, that's where your enforcement point is? It could be VLANs, it could be ACL. There's a variety of mechanisms you could use to um, create zones of control. Cause that's really what you're talking about with, with zero trust is you need to uh, create a, a, a slice of the network, a zone of control where that device is allowed to go. And if they have to go without the, or beyond that zone, they're going across the firewall. So they're getting that mm. inspection and that control. Now, one thing that I should highlight is that you recently announced the 40 SP5, which is your ASIC. Mm -hmm. And you actually have three different ASICs, custom ASICs that you use for to do this inspection. So you can actually deliver this, I believe, at up to 40 gigabits per second, or, or am I misreading that? Uh, yeah, the... Uh, one of the secret sauces that Fortinet has is the fact that we do have our own custom ASICs and being able to take that hardware and really, you know, put in silicon some of the functionality and capability really increases the throughput and capabilities we have, boosts our ability for, you know, SSL decryption, all kinds of, of uh, security 
that we can apply. And that really enables us to put so many of these features on our FortiGate. So you're thinking about, mm -hmm. hey, wait, you know, you said you got ZTNA on your FortiGate. Uh, it's, you know, hosting your ZTNA application gateway. Isn't it also doing the antivirus and the IPS and, and the mm -hmm. SD-WAN and the LAN controller and the wireless controller? And yes, it is. It is doing all those things. But and the only reason it can do that yeah. is because we have that that custom ASIC that's hardware accelerated so many of those functions. Mm -hmm. And we have the tight integration with our operating system. You know, we're developing both of those and we've been doing it for 20 years. So yeah. we do have those tight integrations between the operating system and the hardware assist. You're not so using Rust to run security on tools on top of an Intel DPDK. You know, yeah, the general DPI. purpose processors just, you know, yeah. bog down. Well, well, they do, but, you know, it's cheap. You can write some software and slap it on a processor and away it goes. You don't get speed though, but mm -hmm. you, know, you get a product and you get to market really, really quickly. And that's, there's a differentiator there. Yeah. So there's absolutely, you know, uh, you know, a purpose for those general purpose CPUs, you know, the cloud base where you're going to scale up mm -hmm. and fire up a bunch of VMs and stuff. And you just need, you know, capacity, but in security where you have specific points where you need that throughput, you need that capability to have the visibility into the traffic and do that inspection, having that extra processing power from a custom ASIC, it's just, you know, there's no competition. Well, unfortunately, that's about all we have time for today, Peter. Thanks so much for being on the show. If people wanted to find out more about today's product, where can they go? Well, we have lots of information on our website at Fortinet.com. You just search on ZTNA and uh, we got all kinds of papers and other things to uh, learn more about it. Right. And if you want to go directly to the Zero Trust content, you go 40net.com slash ZTNA. Or for people in different parts of the world, it is ZTNA, just in case you're wanting to worry about that. Thanks so much to 40net for sponsoring today's show. We really appreciate their support. And as always, if you want more information, don't hesitate to head over to packetpushes.net slash FU, where you can send us your follow-up and tell us what you think about the show. We super appreciate any feedback you give us. And if you want us to pass your name onto 40net, let us know. We always appreciate that opportunity. Don't forget to tell them where you found them. You can find this and many more fine free technical podcasts along with our community blog at packetpushes.net. Follow us on the social medias, rate us on your favorite platform, and remember, as always, that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>